Hello and welcome to a new episode of Insight, the global financial institutions industry podcast. My name is Katia Finkel and I'm a senior associate in Baker McKenzie's dispute resolution practice. Together with Andy Moody, a partner and the head of our practice in London, we will be discussing key principles of investment treaty protection in the context of sovereigns and specifically sovereign wealth funds. Hello, everyone. So why is this important? Investment treaties expose sovereigns to significant liability if the rights of foreign investors are encroached upon. At the same time, they also grant powerful protections and direct claims to sovereign wealth funds when they act as foreign investors in other states. And for this reason, investment treaties are both controversial and critical. Andy and I represent both sides in such disputes. We act for and against states and state entities in international, commercial, and investment treaty arbitrations. We also act in complex multi-jurisdictional litigation, mediations, and expert determinations. We advise clients on private and public international law and help them navigate GR and PR issues, which often arise in disputes involving sovereigns. We will explain why this topic is timely, provide concrete recent examples of sovereign wealth funds already bringing investment treaty claims, and tell you how and when you can obtain access to such claims. So now you're asking yourself, why is this relevant? In introducing our sovereign series, Worlds in Motion, Jonathan Petty, our Global Financial Institutions Chair, noted two key trends. First, there is a heavier reliance on alternative capital sources. Now, this is undoubtedly true, and sovereign wealth funds are such sources. Now, direct investments by sovereign wealth funds have almost doubled year on year to U.S. $65.9 billion in 2020, up from $35.9 billion in 2019. Now, the key sectors for these investments are renewable energy, food production, e-commerce, and logistics. Now, sovereign wealth funds also took advantage of the pandemic by investing in specific sectors that suffered significant financial losses. A good example is Saudi Arabia's public investment fund that invested over 10 billion US dollars in US and European blue chip companies. They did so counter-cyclically, investing US 2 billion in stakes of the four oil and gas companies, BP, Shell, Suncor Energy, and Total, and US 1 billion in Marriott International and the cruise company Carnival. Now, this is not to mention portfolio investments that sovereign wealth funds are also making. The second trend Jonathan mentioned is a much greater scrutiny and higher regulation of foreign investment. Over the last decade, we have seen an increase in economic nationalism. The pandemic has put a spotlight on this trend. Under the umbrella of public health and national security, sovereigns have increasingly imposed measures that impede on, and some say infringe, foreign investment. The US and UK's ban on Hawaii equipment is an example. Earlier this year, the UK issued uh, the National Security and Investment Act. This act allows the government to intervene on any foreign investment in a range of sectors involving, quote-unquote, national security. Investment protection treaties are at the epicenter of this dual game. They are agreed between two or more states. They contain reciprocal promises from the promotion and protection of investments made by nationals and companies of one state in the territory of the other. Critically, 
They offer the ability to sue sovereigns directly for a wide range of breaches that can affect foreign investment. It gives investors a remarkable ability to often sidestep a complex, multi-tiered, and sometimes biased national system and go straight for the state's pockets. This ability has not remained unnoticed. There have been over a thousand known investment treaty claims and with a reported average of $1.2 billion claimed and $500 million awarded. So while investment treaty protections are, of course, a key exposure for sovereigns, and it is prudent to bear this in mind uh, when enacting legislation, uh, it is also uh, an opportunity and one that is increasingly seized by sovereign wealth funds. Andy, um, turning to you again, would you be happy to walk us through a few examples, a few of the recent examples of how sovereign wealth funds have seized these opportunities and have relied on investment treaties um, to seek protection? Absolutely. So let's look at some recent examples. Now, investment treaty protection will be particularly important for those sovereigns that invest abroad, either directly or indirectly, including as part of a portfolio of investments. Now, before we tell you more about how and when to access these protections, three recent examples illustrate the breadth of the protections that investment treaties offer. So as a first example, uh, in 2015, uh, the State General Reserve Fund of Oman, which uh, for those of you that don't know, is the state's largest sovereign wealth fund, uh, they commenced proceedings against Bulgaria for a claim of um, $89 million. Uh, The claim was based uh, on the Oman-Bulgarian Bilateral Investment Treaty. Uh, And specifically, the case was about measures that had been taken by the Bulgarian Central Bank which affected a Bulgarian bank, uh, and and the steps that had been taken were the withdrawal of the bank's banking license. And the issue as far as the Oman um, Sovereign Wealth Fund was concerned was that they were a 30% shareholder in that Bulgarian bank. Now, the Sovereign Wealth Fund argued that the actions of Bulgaria's government, uh, their courts, and their own central bank had actually breached the key principles and standards for equal treatment Uh, and protection that sat within the Bulgaria Oman BIT. Now, in May 2015, a Dutch subsidiary of the Abu Dhabi government-owned International Petroleum Investment Company, Hanakol Holdings, brought a claim for US $168 million against Korea under the Korea-Netherlands Bilateral Investment Treaty. Now, the claim was brought because of a tax measure on the sale of Hanakol's stake in a South Korean company to another South Korean. The purchaser of the South Korean state did not pay the full price, but insisted that 10% of the total price was paid as tax on the sale to South Korea's National Tax Service instead of to Hanukkah. Now, the investor argued that the tax should be refunded because this measure was taken against the double taxation avoidance agreement between South Korea and the Netherlands. The claim was, as predicted, (laughs) if you're listening, uh, to... um, on the ground of refusing a tax refund. So as a third example, in December uh, 2016, the Ras Al Khaima Investment Authority, uh, which is commonly known as Rakia, um, and that investment authority is is um, from the United Arab Emirates, as I'm sure most of you know. Well, that, they filed an arbitration against India, again, relying on 
a BIT. Here it was the UAE and India bilateral investment treaty. Now, Rakia is seeking $44 million in damages from India for the cancelled supply agreement to deliver uh, the commodity bauxite. Now, it was part of a 2007 contract with the Indian provincial government in um, Andhra Pradesh. And, and it, the bauxite was needed for the construction and operation of an aluminum refining plant where Rakia was a partner. So these examples of sovereign wealth funds seizing the opportunity that investment treaty protections illustrate the breadth of their protections across different sectors and as against a wide variety of state measures. Equally importantly, they also debunk certain misconceptions. For example, while many investment treaty claims are for billions of dollars, they do not have to be. And a minority and indirect interest in an investment can often be enough to bring a claim. Often, it is also a means to have a seat across the table of the other sovereign without diplomatic escalation. So Katya, how can we obtain access and seek these protections? Well, as we said earlier, investment treaties are effectively deals between countries on how they will treat each other as a nationals, individuals and companies when these invest. They were broadly introduced after the Second World War to ensure that important disputes could be resolved without escalation to diplomatic protection or, worse, gunboat diplomacy. Today, there are just under 3,000 BITs and over 360 other treaties providing for investment protections. So as you say, what, what does one need to do to be able to um, seek those protections? Well, you always have to look at the specific wording of the treaty, but broadly, you need to be an investor who made an investment and you know, need to look at the timing requirement of the treaty, taking each in turn. Uh, first, more often than not, the definition of investor will be met if you're incorporated in the other so-called home state. The idea is to prevent purely domestic disputes to be escalated under investment treaties. We also see requirements that a company must have an actual business and presence in that home state, the so-called denial of benefits clauses. Again, this is to prevent shell companies bringing treaty claims and possibly even to prevent treaty shopping um, by nationals across the globe. Um, we've also seen in the context of sovereign wealth funds, some treaties specifically providing that state corporations um, are allowed to, to be investors. Uh, and we've seen that, for example, in the Ghana-China BIT. Investment treaties also require you to make an investment. This is often very broadly defined in the treaty and includes things like property rights, shares, claims to money, IP rights, among many, many others. Uh, in practice, there has emerged a certain objective or attempt at uh, having an objective definition of investment. And some say it requires a significant duration, regular profits, an element of risk, a material commitment, and a contribution to the development of the host state, the state into which the investment is made. Now, for sovereign wealth funds, of course, the latter point has raised, has, has given rise to some controversy. Um, but the takeaway, Andy, if I had one, um, is actually tribunals have taken a very flexible approach and really you have to see it on a case-by-case -case basis. Now, the last point is timing. 
the timing of the investment and the timing of the claim will be important. The investment treaty landscape has been shifting significantly. Intra-EU PITs and other treaties have been terminated or replaced, uh, which means that uh, some of them may no longer be in force, but please do not assume that because there are sunset clauses that range from 10 to 20 years. Uh, There is also a new topic of abusive process arguments where um, states have said, actually, you know, you, you shouldn't be allowed to bring a claim if you organized your investment in a way so as to bring a claim. And so, of course, the timing of the investment, the timing of the claim become relevant there. Uh, and we actually at Baker's recently published an empirical study on how this issue is decided in practice and when a qualifying investment is made by a qualifying investor, as I said, will be key. And, and put differently, actually, when an investment treaty is incorporated in the investment structure will be key. Thanks, Katya. I mean, that's great to have covered, you know, how an investor actually, you know, what they need to keep in mind when they're thinking about whether they qualify. But the next step, once you're satisfied that you have met those three tests in terms of uh, being an investor, having an investment, and the timing, it's then also really important to think about, well, does the the substance of the treaty, what you were hinting at as we started this um, podcast, uh, does the treaty actually cover me if something goes wrong? So once you've satisfied yourself that, the treaty scope is met, um, you then, as the foreign investor, so as the sovereign wealth fund, have to consider the momentous level of protections, both substantive and procedural, one must say, that comes from the underlying investment treaty. Now, as you said, Kachi, the the terms of the actual treaty itself um, have to be looked at in detail because all of these treaties are, are different, of course. But having said that, there are protections that are found virtually across all uh, of um, these investment treaties. So on on the substantive side, uh, treaties will usually offer a foreign investor the right to a fair fair and equitable treatment. Uh, You often hear this referred to as FET, and you get protection as well against unlawful expropriation. Uh, and the right, um, again, Katya, you mentioned this, the right to be treated as well as any national or other foreigner. Now, when you think about it, these are significant rights. Um, fair and equitable treatment often entails the prohibition against manifest arbitrariness, abusive treatment, or some sort of discrimination. And the, the protection of the investor's legitimate expectations and the guarantee of due process are also covered. Now, the three examples mentioned earlier all have argued for breach of this standard. Now, an, an expropriation will, will not be unlawful. And, and I'm going straight to expropriations because um, that's obviously the most, <laughs> the most stark protection you want uh, as a sovereign wealth fund is, is to know that if you're making an investment, it's not simply going to be seized by the state in which you've invested. But there are exceptions to when an expropriation is not unlawful. Uh, and that's if, if it's for a public purpose or it's non-discriminatory. And, and very, this is very important, if the state uh, provides prompt, adequate, and effective compensation. 
often that will be calculated as the market price. And that's the market price before the disputed measure was actually introduced. So the, the protection also covers indirect or, or what are called creeping expropriations. And examples of these would be measures that render the rights useless. So the, the most um, famous example of this is the, uh, is the UCOS, which UCOS was a, a very well-known Russian oil and gas company uh, whose um, shareholders were awarded over $50 billion dollars in damages in a, in a very famous um, investment treaty case and, and I believe the, the largest uh, award ever made. But more, more importantly, these treaties offer investors the right to bring proceedings directly against the sovereign in international arbitration, i.e. a neutral forum. So if you can think back to the pre-war world, uh, so the world before the Second World War, an investor before these treaties existed uh, would not have had that right, would not have been able to, to in effect, be from a, a different country and, and then take a, a separate state in which he's, he or she has invested into uh, to a neutral forum like international arbitration. Now, it's often said that if there's no right, there is no right if there is no remedy. And, and that really is the point around having the right to arbitrate. So while, while these treaties are signed between states, they offer direct rights to, to actual investors themselves. And the investor themselves can bring an international arbitration against the state for breaches of any of the, the broad rights we've outlined above um, and, and, or, or outlined before. And no further consent from the state is required. Now, this will be in parallel to any other you know, domestic or contractual or other rights that investor may have. And it represents a significant exposure for the offending sovereign. And if the dispute does not settle, the investor may be able to obtain an, an arbitration award that is either under the Washington or the New York Convention, which both offer significant enforcement rights. There will also be ways to keep the proceedings confidential or to bring them into the public domain, depending on the interest of the investor. But the bottom line is that you, you, you have this enforcement options through either the Washington or the New York Convention, which gives this extraordinary right to bring international arbitration proceedings. It gives that right some real teeth because you can obtain a piece of paper at the end of it, which you should be able to turn into money by enforcing under one of these two conventions. So I, I'm going to stop there and hand back to you, Katya, so that um, you, you can you can take us through some concluding thoughts, I think. Yeah. And just before I do that, I mean, one of the cases that you and I are acting on, Andy, um, is actually a good example of, you know, where uh, the different you know the investors rights have been breached or we say have been breached and uh, and we were able to bring investment treaty proceedings alongside a contractual dispute and i think that's an important point that sometimes is missed the the what we're talking about here sits you know in sort of parallel and above in a certain way uh, anything else that you may already have which may include a 
contractual right to bring arbitration. It may include um, regulatory rights, domestic rights that you can bring against local the state. court proceedings. Yeah. Local court, exactly. And actually, you know, all of this remains, um, but but you also have these investment treaties that. That provide this absolutely, you know, incredible opportunity to rely on some promises that were made between two governments, effectively, um, and then, you know, and very broad promises, as as you rightly said, and actually go go straight for the jugular of the state, uh, and of course that's important for the from the state's perspective in terms of exposure, but really important from as an opportunity and, and as something that one needs to think about uh, from a sovereign wealth fund's perspective when you make those investments. Absolutely. Um, and I mean and that actually sort of swiftly brings me to concluding uh, remarks, uh, which really is to say, you know, any financial institution uh, would be well advised to consider investment structuring and investment treaty protections. Um, But it is all the more critical for sovereigns, uh, both on the respondent side and more and more on the claimant side. And and actually, a lot of sovereign wealth funds are already seizing that opportunity, as, as Andy outlined. In terms of timing, really, it goes to, well, at both ends of the spectrum. So any prospective investor, we say, would be wrong not to ensure that its investment benefits from those protections and there are ways of structuring it in a way that it does. Um, But an existing investor, uh, whether it's a direct investment or indirect through portfolio investment, um, who thinks, you know, its investment has been affected by state measures or future state measures that are sort of foreseeable. Um, Again, we would say it would be wrong not to carefully analyze uh, these protections as part of a comprehensive strategy. And that strategy, as I said before, you know, as Andy also mentioned, can involve a multi-pronged strategy of domestic measures, international measures, contractual measures, and of course, as we said, PR and GR strategy. Katja, you asked me to to put forward a a final uh, thought or a final tip um, for sovereign wealth funds. And and I think it would be this, which is ensure you are considering uh, investment treaties as part of your investment decision-making process. It, it, it is very common for investors to look at uh, obviously where they want to invest and what the opportunity is. And um, and often they're, they're, they're thinking very carefully about tax, for example, uh, and what benefits can be taken and how the investment can be, can be made in a tax-efficient way. And yet they lose sight of one of the most important aspects, which is investment protection treaties and ensuring that they are, um, you know, not missing out on the ability to bring a claim under an investment treaty protection or be able to take advantage of the protections those treaties offer, which are, are very important if something goes wrong. And, and at the point when uh, a, a sovereign wealth fund or, or any other investor is making an investment. It's always lovely and light and everyone sees the, the beautiful possibility of making lots of money and no one wants to think about what happens when it goes wrong. But, but actually, particularly investments where it is sensitive potentially for 
the, the 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 sovereign country in which you're you're making the investment, either because of the sector or because of the particular industry in which you're, the investment is being made, it's all the more important to ensure that you're having a, a, a close look at how the investment is being rooted and ensuring that it's taking advantage of full investment treaty protection as much as possible. Thank you so much to our listeners for joining us. If you find this podcast helpful, which we hope you do, you may be interested in the Sovereign Series Worlds in Motion that we mentioned earlier, where we map the post-pandemic environment for sovereigns globally. Our latest installment, The State of State Immunity, is now available on bakermckenzie.com. As I said before, my name is Katja Finkel, and Andy and I thank you for listening. We hope you can join us for our next episode of Finsight. And if you have any questions, please do not hesitate to reach out to us.